Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone. Uh, I just was introduced, but in case you missed it, my name is Brad. I'm a senior pastor here, and it was also mentioned, uh, really for anyone, but particularly if you're relatively new and you like to meet me or learn more about the church, uh, just email me, and coffee and maybe something to nibble on is our treat, and we'd love to, I'd love to have the chance to get to know you a little bit better, uh, so take advantage of that, seriously. And before I get into the sermon today... I do have a really fun announcement. From time to time, we have a class called Discover Mosaic, and that class is an opportunity to learn more about the vision, value, and history, vision, values, and history of our church. For anyone who's curious, but also at the end of that class, uh, if uh, you're so predisposed, or not predisposed, that's not the right word, but if you want to, you become a member. And so today we have the opportunity to welcome two new members to our community. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo, boom. What does that mean? Well, members are people that not only buy into the vision of our church, what we're trying to accomplish and who we're trying to be here in West Philadelphia, but also commit to leaning into that vision and supporting it uh, with time and energy and resources. And so that's everything from volunteering to giving financially on a regular basis. And it's, it's not a slight commitment, and it makes a big difference. So this whole thing runs. Uh, we have like four staff, maybe five staff, and an army of volunteers. And the frontline people on that team are our members. So we know it's a big commitment, and it's not something to be taken lightly. So anytime we have new members, we want to welcome them and also pray for them. So our, our two new members this week are Ben Cochran and Brianne Roper Cochran. Would you guys please stand up? They're over here. Yeah, you can round of applause. So if you're on this wing, you have to take my word for it. Ben and Bree are over here. And the first thing we want to do, if you're near them and you feel comfortable, if you could just place a hand on them, nothing magic about your hand, but in the Bible, as a sign of blessing, people would often, it's called laying hands on people, um, to welcome them or to send them off. This time it's a welcome. We're not sending you away. We're glad you're here. So... Uh, I'll pray, and if, if you're so inclined, join your heart to mine. Jesus, thank you for Ben and Bree. It's been such a pleasure to get to know them. Thank you for the way that you've already connected them to our community and our family and our team. We pray that you would help them to find their footing and their place uh, even more in the days and weeks and years to come. We pray that you would connect them deeply to relationships that will be full of life for them, um, that will be a support to them. And also we pray you'd help them find the ways that they can support other people and the ways that they can lean into uh, the purposes and the missions that you've given our community, um, that there'd really be a give and take. And I pray also in the imperfections of our relationships, imperfections of our community, there'd be lots of grace and life and that we would grow through our mistakes uh, and be drawn closer together. Bless them, Lord. Thank you for their commitment. I pray whatever they pour into us, you would pour back into their lives 10 times as much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So welcome, Ben and Bree. We have a little mosaic swag bag. Um, Chris, could you do the honors? This is for them. Uh, that way, uh, you know, every time you have coffee in the morning or when you're working out, you can wear a mosaic T-shirt. <laughs> All right. So a few years ago, an article was published in the Washington Post by April Witt. 
and it was entitled Inquiring Minds Inside America's All-Consuming Passion. And in the article, the author comments on what she sees as the primary way that people in the United States seek to find meaning and purpose in their lives. You might be able to see where this is going, but you might be a little surprised too. And she writes this. She says, consumerism was the triumphant winner of the ideological wars of the 20th century, beating out both religion and politics as the path millions of Americans follow to find purpose, meaning, order, and transcendent exaltation in their lives. Liberty in this market democracy has, for many, come to mean freedom to buy as much as you can of whatever you wish, endlessly reinventing and telegraphing your sense of self with each new purchase. Luxury goods in particular, from SUVs with heated leather seats to widescreen TVs and stainless steel ranges the size of tanks, have become such accepted symbols of the good life that they are considered must-haves, even by those who can't really afford them. The pursuit of them has become so intertwined with the pursuit of happiness that professor and author James B. Twitchell talks about the shopper's epiphany, which is, quote, it's that feeling of, whew, I found it. I am saved. This was, uh, uh, that's the end of the quote. So this is me talking now. This was a surprise to many people. Actually, according to the article, as recently as the 20th century, many economists and philosophers were expecting and predicting that in the not-so-distant future, that the American technical and manufacturing prowess would easily provide for everyone's basic needs. And in the 1930s, there was an economist, uh, John Maynard Keynes, who predicted that within just a few generations, everyone would be working, and this is true, two-hour days. And the assumption was that our needs would be satisfied. And on this point, Witt quotes the historian Gary Cross, who says, quote, that was the assumption through, throughout most of human history. What happened, of course, is that they were wrong. We never have maxed out on goods. Now we realize that goods are not essentially about satiating material needs or physical needs, but rather psychological and social ones. And those needs, it would appear, are absolutely endless. Does that make sense to you? I read that. I don't think that's that big of a surprise, actually. A lot of people I know are starting to understand that in a pretty significant way. But to me, this indicates that we are reaching a point in our culture where people are beginning to realize they will never be able to have enough things to feel happy and secure. So psychological needs, social needs, they go way beyond what we can fill by accumulating material things. So today, we're going to talk about how we can tell if we are hopelessly chasing after material things, hoping that they will satisfy our needs, while also examining how a God-centered life can offer something truly life-giving as an alternative. Does that sound interesting? So how can you tell? How can you tell if it's happening to you? To do this, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that details a Jesus and an interaction he has with someone who's gotten a bit caught up in this trap of materialism. And 
we're kind of watching a bit of an intervention here. So this is Luke 21, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guards against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all that you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Now, to follow this story, I want to kind of break it up into four parts. I think it might help us take it in a little bit more. So we're going to look at a request, the problem, the warning signs, and the solution. The request, the problem, the warning signs, and solution. So what's the request? It's pretty obvious, right? Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, one of the things that first strikes me about this request is that the man calls Jesus teacher, but clearly isn't interested in learning anything from him, at least not at the beginning. Do you notice that? You can tell this because he tells Jesus what he thinks he should do. And he's got everything worked out already. So he just wants Jesus to back him up right? Tell my brother to give me half the inheritance or to divide it with me. Now, that isn't a particularly effective way to approach anyone, let alone a teacher, let alone God, right? When we have a problem in our life and we look to God for help, it can be so easy to tell God what needs to happen, how he needs to fix it, so we can get on with what it is we think we're supposed to be doing in life. God, take away this desire I have for this relationship that I know is no good for me. Just take it away. Make it easy. God, provide some miraculous money to cover this big credit card bill that I have. Ma, our mom. God, <laughs> call your mom. Don't pray. God, get my brother to give me half the money. But what if the fix that we're asking for ignore, you know, there's a the motherhood side of God too. Anyway, but God, what, or, but what if the fix that we're asking for ignores the bigger problem, like, why do I want to be with someone who's abusing me or leading me away from God? Or how did I end up running up such a big credit card bill? Why am I spending beyond my means? Or why am I so concerned with getting mine that I would risk messing up my relationship with my brother by taking him to court? What if Jesus has a different agenda than ours? What if he wants to teach us something or grow us? Maybe it would make more sense to pray something like, help me see the situation like you do. Or what's important to you here, Jesus? Or how can I learn from you in this? Or how can I love my brother in this situation? And for those of us who want to escape the trap of looking to material things to meet the needs that they can't, we it can be helpful to approach Jesus as someone who can teach us, that we can learn from. 
with an openness to learn and change and develop and grow and do things differently. So a helpful question sometimes to ask ourselves is this, am I looking for backup or am I learning? Am I looking for backup? Is that why I'm praying? Is that what I'm hoping for in life? Or am I looking to grow and change and learn and try something different? That's the request. The problem is this. Notice Jesus and his response to the man who approaches him. He says, watch out. Be on your guard. Watch out. Be on your guard. Jesus seems to see a problem here, a danger. But the problem isn't with the man's brother. It's with him. So he warns him. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual response. A lot of times when Jesus wants people to pay attention, if you read the stories of his life, he'll say, truly, I say to you. And that's sort of a highlight. He'll say, pay attention right now. Sometimes he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. And that's a, a double headlight. But every once in a while, he'll say, watch out. Danger. Danger. Not too often. But when he does, you think, all right, let's pay attention. Jesus is going to point something that's really significant to living life out right now. So what do you think when he says, watch out, what's he going to say? I mean, you read the story, so you kind of know, but if you think there'd be a big warning, it would be, watch out for adultery. That's a big one. That'll mess up your life, you know? Watch out for murder. Don't kill anybody. That'll mess up your life and theirs. Um, yeah, that's a little obvious. Sorry. Didn't mean that, um, although it's true. But what he says here is greed. Greed is what he's warning his listener about, right? And the definition of greed is just simply the consuming desire to have more. And it seems that Jesus uses such strong language here because greed is something, I think, that we often can easily overlook. We don't necessarily see it as that big a deal, right? Now, I read a story uh, about a man named Ivan Boski. I, I think I'm saying that right. And Ivan went to prison and paid a fine of $100 million for insider training. And just a few years later, he was again the darling of Wall Street. Have you ever heard of him? And during that time, after he'd already been to jail, he declared at a graduation ceremony at a major university, quote, greed is all right. I want you to know I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. And a Newsweek, a Newsweek uh, article later commented this. It said, the strangest thing when we look back will not be just that Ivan Boski could say that at a university graduation, but that it was greeted with laughter and applause. Now, probably very few of us actually think that greed is a good thing, right? But sometimes our attitudes or the way we live what gets us excited or angry betray our deeper convictions. And if you look or took an informal poll of the people at that graduation, I think that people would far, who don't want to be greedy would far outnumber those who do. Yet, many of them found themselves applauding the idea. Sometimes greed is more a part of the way we do things than we realize, particularly when it comes to the way we order our lives or make decisions. And it seems to me that this desire to be satisfied can be focused on having more, right? 
That's what that article was talking about. And the very definition of greed is the consuming desire to have more. And I think Jesus uses strong words to try and wake this guy up. Greed's an important issue because it speaks to the deepest places of who we are. Notice that the reason that Jesus gives for being on guard against greed is this. He says, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You see, greed is really a question of identity. And this is the root of what the article in the Washington Post is trying to get at. We think that if we have certain things or more of certain things that we will be okay people, will somehow have value. You know, I read this, the same article, and they interviewed someone who said this. Uh, One day, I was in DuPont Circle, and a woman where, this will date this story a little bit, so you may not know all this, but this will date it a little bit. But one day, I was in DuPont Circle, and a woman wearing the Burberry trench coat that had the plaid on the outside, the one Allie McBeal wore on television, and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted She stood right in front of me so I couldn't move, he recalls. I thought, this is ridiculous. You think you're something because you're wearing this absurd coat. I'm wearing a Donna Karen black label cashmere suit, so give me a break. I've already trumped you, and we haven't even talked about my loafers yet. Don't play that game. I just looked at her and said, move. Now, in this example... The Donna Karen wearing gentleman thinks that he's more important because of what he has, his fashion. It's high end, right? Now, do we do the same thing with other things that we have? Jobs, cars, cool phones, or the things that we don't have. You know, sometimes our identity can become in what we don't have or in the things we avoid. So we become anti-materialists And look down on people who have what we consider to be lavish. It's still a question of identity just flipped. Same side of the coin. Or different side of the same coin. In any case, I think Jesus is trying to wake up his listeners by illustrating that their value is not based on what they have or what they can acquire or even in how modestly they can live. In short, I think the parable shows how fleeting material things really are, even when we think that they're solid. They can be taken away, or as we see in this parable, you can be taken away from them. Material things cannot be depended on to meet our deepest needs. It's a huge theme here. And I think this parable helps us know if we're falling into the trap that was so vividly described in Mrs. Witt's or Ms. Witt's article, The Trap of Expecting Material Things to Fill Endless Social and Psychological Needs. So, a big idea at the start of this talk was how can we tell if that's happening to us? Because usually it's unconscious. It happens without us realizing it. So in this story, in this parable, I think there are at least three warning signs that can help wake us up if we're doing this by accident. All right, you want to know what they are? Some of you? Okay, here we go. The first warning sign, I need more storage space. 
Maybe I'll just pause for a moment. Verse 16, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. So we in the U.S., we have way more stuff than we need. (laughs) We have so much stuff that we can't keep it all in our homes. We have to rent storage spaces. So in New York Times Magazine, uh, there was an article called The Self-Storage Self. And in this article, there are a few interesting things. One, the Self-Storage Association, first of all, I didn't know there was one of those, but there is. And they note that with more than seven square feet for every man, woman, and child, it is now physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. Every American at the same time. 50% of the spaces are being used to house things that would no longer fit at home. And self-storage facilities have become, quote, they say, (laughs) they're, they're patting themselves on the back, the last national commons, places where nearly every conceivable kind of American still goes. So let's be practical. Let's get down to earth here. Do you have storage problems? Is your closet, basement, or dresser overflowing? Could you fit more things in your drawers? Could you fit more things in your drawers? You know, we just, my family just moved, sort of. (laughs) You know the whole story. We bought a new house and at least moved our stuff in. And we just moved our stuff of our old home of 15 years into a new house. And we carried, and some of you were there with me, over 70 bins from one basement to the new basement. Now let's be honest. If something is in a bin in my basement, it probably means I haven't looked at it or touched it for at least five years. It's not sparking any joy. Why do I still have it? The next warning sign. These are just to perk us up, make us think. Am I more concerned about saving than giving? I'm more concerned about saving than giving. That's a tricky one, okay? The Bible does commend, to a certain degree, saving. Look at Proverbs 6. If you want to look that up later, Proverbs 21. But clearly in this passage, the rich man is called a fool for saving too much. Now, as I understand it, saving is healthy and good insofar as it keeps us from being presumptuous about God's provision in our lives. So it's good and wise. And not, to not expect that we can be irresponsible And God will always bail us out, right? But saving gets out of balance when we try to save so much that we actually replace God as our provider and put our trust in ourselves. I'll put so much away, he says, that I won't need anyone, including God. This is called hoarding. And we get into this mode, we miss the opportunities right in front of us to bless and love people with the resources we have because we're more concerned with taking care of ourselves and our future. And we fail to, quote, love our neighbor as ourselves. 
as Jesus taught his followers to do. You know, um, I think this can be challenging. But in light of Jesus' teaching, particularly, it's particularly important for people of faith who want to follow Jesus. Uh, there's this book uh, where a man named Larry Burkett was, was quoted as saying this, um, and this is writing particularly to people of faith. He says, retirement planning so dominates the thinking of Christians who have sizable incomes that they overkill in this area enormously. The fear of doing without in the future causes many Christians to rob God's work of the very funds he has provided. And these monies are tucked away in retirement accounts for 20 to 40 years. And God's word does not prohibit, but rather encourages saving for the future, including retirement. But the example of the rich fool should be a clear direction that God's balance is, quote, when in doubt, give, don't hoard. And it seems from Scripture that God's primary desire is that we be givers first, that we be generous and generous people. And Jesus taught a lot about giving, but as far as I can tell, never said anything about saving. And I think that saving and giving are both biblical, healthy principles and valuable to anyone in any walk of life. But the great overwhelming emphasis is placed on being generous and serving people with our resources. So saving's a good thing. I'm trying to save for retirement. I'm behind <laughs> in a lot of ways. We planted a church, and we didn't save at all <laughs> in my 30s. I'm only 44, but I get it. But when it becomes more important than giving generously, that's a warning sign that material things may be coming too important in our lives. Third warning sign. When I think it's all mine. When I think it's all mine. How do you view the things in your basement or in your drawers or in your accounts? You know, the rich man in this parable is completely focused on himself. Did you notice that? There's a lot of pronouns here. Pronouns describe a person, place, or a person right? And he uses the word I six times in this short story. It's only like three sentences long. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. I will store all my grain. I will say to myself, right? Then he uses the word my five times in like three sentences. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, myself. And what he doesn't realize, and this is a big theme of this entire series, is that everything he has is on loan from God. And God can take it back at any time. And it seems that this is why the rich man in the story is referred to as a fool. Now, in the Bible, a fool is someone who makes choices as if there's no God or there's no accountability and who lives life as if God hasn't spoken. So Psalm 14 says, a fool says... In their heart, there is no God. Now, if you're here today and you're not sure whether or not you believe in God, uh, before you take advance, offense at this, let me explain one thing. One thing that I think will be challenging to everyone, whether you are a seeker, a believer, an agnostic, an atheist, whatever. Being considered a fool or wise in Scripture has much less to do with what you believe 
and way more to do with the decisions that you make. So do I believe in God philosophically? Great, I can still be a fool. I can believe in God, I can call myself a Christian, but handle my money however I see fit with no sense of accountability and checking only with myself about what I do with my resources. And in that sense, I show that I have no real sense of accountability and that I'm a fool. But even if I don't subscribe to any particular belief in a higher power, but I live as if I'll have to give an account for how I use my resources, then I exercise wisdom. How do you view the stuff you have in your life? Is it yours or is it a gift on loan? And if you start to think that it's yours or that it's owed to you, watch out. That's a warning sign that you're beginning to be defined by what you own or possess. And finally, a solution. You might be expecting this because you came to a house of worship today. Um, but the solution is this. The wise live a God-centered life. You notice in this parable that God is really the one who owns and controls everything. He can give. He can take away. And we see here that he gives and gives generously. And understanding this, I think, is a key to getting out of the trap of looking to things to define us, to fill us, to give us a sense of well-being. In this parable, the rich man has a God who cares for him, who's providing all of his needs. But instead of placing his sense of value in the fact that God cares for him, the fact that God values him, God is watching out for him, he places his value in the things that God has given him. One can be taken away, the other cannot. And a God-centered life is deeply affirming because it says that who you are, apart from anything else, apart from anything that you have, is important and valuable to God. And the material trap that Jesus warns us about in this passage says that we are valuable because of what we have. And if we fall into this trap, of course we always have to have more. And of course we have storage problems. And of course we'll oversave. And of course we'll see everything as ours. And our hopes to be generous will be seriously hindered. How can we give away the things that tell us who we are? But if we can learn that we're okay because God values us and would not spare anything, even his own son, to care for us, then we can be free to see the things that we have as gifts from God. Nothing is mine. It all belongs to you, God. What's your agenda? It's your crops. It's your barns. It's your grain. It's your goods. I belong to you. And sometimes to really experience this, we have to put things in their proper place. In other words, instead of building bigger barns, 
we can choose to give away what God has given us. Not allowing material things to define us, while at the same time embracing our identity as givers made in the image of God. So here's three questions I read in a book once by Randy Alcorn. Some of these will hit you, some of them won't. There's three of them, maybe one makes sense to you, but let me just give you some things to think about. So just, I want you to chill out, I want you to close your eyes and relax. I'm going to read these. Some will hit home. Some are for some people, not others. Some are for you, okay? Here's some questions that I want you to read along with in your heart and see if the Holy Spirit speaks to you through some of them. First, Lord, Am I honoring you as the owner and CEO, CFO of the assets you've entrusted to my care? Or am I treating you as a mere financial consultant to whom I pay a fee? Have I been acting as if I own the store and you work for me rather than recognizing that you own it and everything is a gift? Lord, I'm wondering, why have you entrusted me with greater financial blessing than I once had? I guess I've assumed that you've done it to raise my standard of living. But now I'm asking, is it instead to raise my standard of giving? Do I really see myself as your delivery person? Or do I assume that because you put something in my hands, I'm supposed to keep it for myself? Lord, have I overaccumulated? Have I allowed unwise spending and accumulating debt to inhibit my giving to you? Have I said, there's not enough left to give while maintaining giving habits that make sure there's not enough to give? So, the last, I think, six weeks now, I've really been uh, pushing you in the area of generosity. Haven't I? Anybody been here any of these weeks? I have a little extra freedom because, as you know, I'm in a transition here. It doesn't, it's not going to affect my salary, right? So I get a little extra just to tell you what I think. And the first reason is because I think what we're talking about in this series is good for you, honestly. Like, to reflect who God is and who God's made you to be. God's generous, and so if we don't learn, and we have to learn how to be generous people, it's like cutting off an arm. Part of the image of God that we are created to live with is gone, or losing the, the sense of smell or taste. We lose something about the experience of life the way it's supposed to be. So generosity is that important. It affects every area of your life. So the biggest thing here is about what kind of life do you want to live? How do you want to experience life? Do you believe that you're made in the image of God? And if so, it's very important that we learn how to be generous because in our culture, we learn how not to be generous. We have to unlearn and relearn, right? That's why the practical parts of this series are really important. It's training your own mind and heart to reconnect with who God made you to be. 
So that's the main thing. This is for you, honestly. I can say it's for you because I'm not going to get anything out of this. All right? The second thing is, this is a key time in our church. And this is a motivating factor for this series right now. I'm about to transition out of this role. I've been the senior pastor. I'm a co-founder of this church. That's a big time in the life of a church. And historically, in other congregations, that has often meant that things like generosity go down, right? When buy-in needs to be the highest, people can sometimes get scared and pull back. That's human nature. But it doesn't have to be like that. This is the time to lean in, not to wait and see. And so my hope is that for this coming year, you are more intentional than you ever have been about giving generously to this community. Everyone here, unless this is your first or second time, you're here because of something good that you have experienced out of this community. So I'd say this. If you never have before, this is the first time in your life you need to plan for generosity. You can't just wait to be moved by the Spirit. You've got to build it in from the beginning. You have to plan with your heart. And so, I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. This isn't the first time I ask this. This transition year, this is in your bulletin, I will give X, fill in the blank, a month. So you can plan a set aside to set this community up to move into the future. And when the new pastor comes in, they can focus on ministry and building this community and building on the foundation that is surely in place so that the future of this community is brighter than it's ever been. This is the time to lean in, not pull back. So I think I've got one more sermon in this series. By the end of next week, I want you to fill in that blank. I don't want you to think about, oh, that's an interesting question. I want you to write a number that's practical and a reach, a bit of a stretch, requires some faith that will help you develop your faith and develop as a person of generosity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how good you are. Thank you for how you have poured out every good and perfect gift into our lives. This morning, as we move into a time of worship, help us to connect to how good you are and how much we have to be thankful for. In Jesus' name, amen.